Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Creator Podcast. My guest today is Ben Demon. I'm stoked to share this conversation because it's packed with awesome stories. Ben is a great orator and storyteller, and I had just a fantastic time being not only entertained, but also thought-provoked, if that's even a word. Um, Just really got to talk about some really cool concepts and learn a little bit about the culture of living completely sustained on the land that you live on in Kauai specifically. Ben spent six months down there and then also the huge trip that he did, the Great Himalaya Traverse in 2019. I may be wrong about that, but Ben's got a bunch of stories to share and we had a great conversation. So I'm going to get out of the way. Here we go with Ben Demon. Ben Demon, welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be here. Yeah, this Thanks is exciting. This is exciting. From France to Seattle, correct? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good nine hours, right? Yeah. So it's 9 a.m. here, 9.06, 6.06 there. Yeah, sun's just starting to go down. Nice. And you said yep. you got some uh, some dinner cooking in the other room. You might smell it and get distracted. She's in there making um, orchiette, which is uh, like a... It's a handmade pasta you do uh, with semolina and regular flour and water. And then you peel them up with like a little uh, butter knife and they look like these floppy ears. And uh, we're going to make like a blue cheese sauce Oof. on top of it. Yeah. Wow, that sounds good. Is, well, you understand, this was like, this is staple camp food, believe it or not. Really? Uh, Just some butter on yeah. some handmade pasta? Really? Yeah. Yeah. We spent, uh, what, eight months, 2000. 20 in Australia and doing the car camping thing, a lot of that. And it was like basically every night we're just making, cause flour is cheap, water is available. And then you just get whatever you're going to do for a sauce. And uh, usually we get like an onion and a knob of butter and call it good. But uh, the favorite, the once a week favorite is you just get a shit ton of blue cheese and you melt that down and toss the pasta directly in melted blue cheese, and it's it's delectable. Especially when you're sitting out with like a big sky full of stars, and you got a little wine, a little boxed wine or something. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I'm so I'm stoked to hear about a number of your different um, journeys, adventures. We met in Utah like three or four. I don't even know, maybe more years ago. And 2017. 2017. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, I mean, to just like set the context a little bit about this, I was thinking about meeting you, our conversation, what I wanted to talk to you about. And in the very short amount of time that we spent chatting in Utah, like it was, as you said the other day on the phone, just like a blink, you know, it's just like a quick evening of conversation. But some of the words that you left me with really impacted me in a positive way. So I just want to say thanks for that, but also want to get inside your head to like go a little bit deeper and hear more about some of these experiences that you've had traveling and just in life in general. So that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. And, uh, yeah, I'm stoked for this. Rad dude. I, I applaud you for staying in touch. You know, it's one of those things where often you meet people and then that's it. It's just like, you may follow each other on Instagram and like every once in a while you say, Oh yeah, that was, I remember, remember that dude or, or whatever. But like the fact that you actually every once in a while just said, Hey man, what's going on? It's, it's way harder than people think just to stay in touch with relative strangers or even like close acquaintances who you don't spend a lot of time with. And, uh, I mean, I find in my life, I don't even, 
I'm hardly accountable to people who are really close to me sometimes. And the fact that like, yeah, you just mentioned it. I was, I was stoked on your energy to just like want to connect again. So yeah, man, appreciate that. Really, it's, all, it's all you, not, not side of things. Appreciate that, man. Um, I've, yeah, I think it was just the, the fact that you were kind of like a mystery on through the minimal social media posting that you do, just like seeing some of your travels, some of the photos, and then the way that you would do some of your like poetic captioning and writing and stuff like that. I would, I would just be like, man, who is this guy? So, um, I'm looking at him straight in his face right now, which is sweet. Um, but yeah, man, tell me about early on growing up and then how you sort of like got into this just mindset of adventure and the, the current like life that you have been living. And then we'll kind of dive in from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like, so I found, um, that a lot of who I am is a reaction to certain things that I, I I'd experienced in my past. And, um, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio in 15 minutes from the city, but suburbs, right? Like suburbs, it's pretty comfortable living. And, um, when I left high school, I was going to go play, uh, played ball, play soccer at Emory university, got all the good grades and this and that. I mean, I got into some trouble in high school whatnot. My own little rebel streak had already seeded itself then. Um, so I went to school at Emory University for two years and was, was playing playing soccer. And the whole time, though, I mean, I was bouncing between courses. I was like, I was taking philosophy, creative writing, business. I was taking Eastern uh, spiritual traditions combined with like, you know, accounting and, uh, you know, weird classes on music. I was just taking anything that sounded interesting and telling my parents, I'm going to major in business, you know? And, uh, cause this is to, to of course, um, settle my dad's feelings about like what it is he wants his son to do. Um, but come the second year, man, I was just, I I'd had it. I, I was just like surrounded by these beautiful institutional buildings, by these freshly cut green lawns, and uh, students who excelled in high school, who a lot of them had a lot of money. I didn't have a ton. We were, you know, middle class, whatever. But they had a lot of money driving nice cars, doing the fraternity thing. Uh, they were interested in just getting fucked up, you know. Weekends come. Actually, basically all week is a weekend. It's college. You know? they, everybody's just getting fucked up all the time. And I started uh, taking more mushrooms than drinking. And there was a sort of dichotomy that, that started manifesting itself. And uh, for good, for better or worse, I got injured playing ball. I got two stress fractures in my femur, um, which was like a, a blow for me because I'd sort of placed a lot of myself, of ident- my identity in, in the sport. And uh, as things were unraveling with the, with the sport, I was sort of like so disillusioned with what I was feeling in, at the university. And uh, a sort of um, antagonism with the status quo that I made up my mind I was going to drop out. Whatever, cool. Drop out, I'll save up some money, and I'll hitchhike out west. And, uh, you know, I was reading a lot. I was reading Kerouac and doing all the beat guys and really just going deep on that cutting loose, that just, like, feeling of freedom, whatever that is. And, uh, of course, you know, my parents are like, well, you got to figure it out, like, you know, do that, support yourself. So I, uh, what did I do? I went and rolled burritos at Chipotle for like, you know, eight months. And, uh, 
and saved up enough money. But over the course of saving up money, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to hike the Appalachian trail. My, my grandpa had died and, uh, digging through his, his stuff, found an old backpack. And I was like, cool, I'll take that backpack. And there was like some maps, some old AT maps. And so I was like, cool, I'll, I'll do that. And at the time I convinced my girlfriend to come do it with me. So she dropped out of school too. And we both set off in Georgia in the spring, April, 2012. And we hiked clear to Maine. It took us six months. And uh, we, we hiked like 2000 miles, got introduced to this lifestyle of like living in the woods and moving every day, picking up camp, moving and you're bumping and mingling with people. You know, Appalachian Trail is fairly domesticated trail you know there's it's you can't really get lost and uh you see people every day and you see the same people often and um i was running into people just transfixed by their stories you get you meet old timers you meet you know middle middle aged people everybody decided drop out of life hit the trail for whatever time they're gonna do and i had no stories i had nothing to tell them i really had like it would come around me at the campfire take a hit of the joint and just keep it going because I had nothing to say because it felt like up to that point life was just heading in a very simple traject trajectory and the amount of life experience that I'd had was just was nil and it was this sort of like dearth of life experience that made me feel like man like I gotta do something about that like it's 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 on you like it's the choices you make like it's it's of of utter importance to to disengage yourself with with trajectories that you don't think are going to to fit who you want to be in the future and uh i mean granted i was fairly aimless but that was it once i once i caught a dose it was uh it was off to the races and um so after the at i don't know i can allow i can keep going i'm, I'm sitting here strapped in i'm loving it so I, right. I didn't i didn't hear this story i know a little bit about your trip on the at but um, yeah it, well, to it me, was, my, my initial reaction was like, man, what a what a radical move. Like you've not done much like of this type of long, long time or uh, I never camped I ne I car camp and never backpacked camp. Like, wow. Never, like I learned how to make uh -huh. fire. Out there. Yeah. And the, yeah. man, there's so many different things in there. I'm gonna let you keep going in a sec. But what you were talking about with like feeling like you didn't really have the experiences in life that you want, the trajectory that you were going on wasn't um, something that you knew was going to like be who you want to be in the future. I can relate to both of those things quite a bit being someone who was in business school on that path myself and have slowly like directed that trajectory towards more what my soul and what I really want to do. But so yeah, I, I want to hear more about like some of the um, like just this mindset shift that happened or like this, what was inside your head at this time when you were making this big transition from like being on this path that was set out for you versus stepping off of it? Like, what is it inside you? Is it like that rebel spirit that you mentioned? Or what were you thinking at the time? I think like, honestly, it was a bit dark. Like it was a it was a bit dark because I felt this great beef with the world for whatever reason. And uh, like the outlet for me fortunately was was the mountains like it really could have gone other directions at that point and uh i think it was it was just the simplicity of that lifestyle you know i read walt whitman and henry david thoreau like over and over when i was out there and i had this 
transcendent transcendental experience of my own just i became so engaged with nature and so just elated every day just studying the trees and listening to the water and you know in the at you do you do 15 20 miles a day which is i mean it's it's something but compared to what i eventually put on in trails at the time it was it was more just that like coming back to your mother like it was it was that strong of a connection to nature that i didn't really have growing up i mean i played outside nonstop, but like on on fresh cut soccer fields i played i didn't play like deep in the in the woods of appalachia and um that that sort of revelation was was key because it shifted that sense of of darkness and abandon from the world into like a reprioritization of things and it's like nature first and foremost because this is where i'm at home and uh i didn't realize because i my experience at that point was fairly limited and uh in terms of experiencing wilderness and such and so my conception of wilderness was at the appalachian trails that's why when I sent myself out west and started playing more there, it just kept opening up and opening up. And then I realized like, oh yeah, this is, this is where I belong. Beautifully said, beautifully said. When we met the words that I just stuck in my brain from our conversation was when you told me like, yeah, man, the adventure begins when you've got a tab of acid under your tongue and you're off the trail and you're just finding your way. And um, just kind of that visual of you and, and just being out there in like the, the middle of the desert in Utah and just cruising 20, 30 miles in the way you described it. I don't know, man. I've, I had never met someone at that point in my life who had been doing this type of like serious adventuring. And so it was super inspiring to me. I was just in my car, like car camping and like doing a little day hike here and there. I think I had my mountain bike with me. But um, yeah, so that I want to just kind of like dive deeper into um like this mother feeling that you were talking about, I think um, a lot of people can relate to that. Like the earth, like we literally come from the earth. Of course, like we should feel this motherly relationship with it, but we get so disconnected with it in our typical modern society that unless you're intentionally getting out there and experiencing that, you can, um, I think have a lot of like mental challenge, like a lot of strife in the mind. Just if you don't have that connection, I think it's crucial as well. Right. Yeah. I'd mentioned that the first i'd say like 10 to 14 days out there your mind is just running full speed as if you're in the real world and it slowly starts quieting down and i think of it as this sort of exodus of the riffraff like it just starts flowing out of you all of the nonsense just flows out and your mind really quiets down i mean that's the beautiful thing about through hikes which through hikes if people who don't know is just basically picking up and taking off in a single direction and creating a, a map of continuous footsteps between point A and point B. So you may have to hitchhike to town. You always go back to where you, you left off. Uh, and the goal is to create a continuous footpath from point A to point B. And uh, that journey, so it begins with that, that riffraff leaving, and then you become more and more engrossed in it. But the technical aspects of like navigating, for example, in, in Utah, uh, off trail and stuff, that ability to read topographic maps, to be able to judge weather in canyons, to be able to pick your line on certain strata of rock and be able to survive like fording rivers 
or scrambling over sketchy loose rock like all of that is uh is a different thing altogether but you know i tell people that those that that module that actually interacts with nature and it's most extreme is something we all have but it's untapped and those muscles are have atrophied to almost nothing when i did the at like i didn't know how to read topo map and at this point i can look at a topo map leave it alone and i can see it in my head just I, as i'm walking i can understand okay i'm on that topo line and I'm, I'm trying to stick at this sort of gradient level and all of that and that's just a process like anybody can do it i would have never been able to tell you which way is north or west back in the day but now i can't i can't stop i always think about it oh yeah that's head north and uh it's one of those things where the muscles are there for just about anybody to tap into but you've got to put in the work mm. so you that's that's really interesting like um the talking about just like always kind of knowing where north is just being more connected to um the earth i think i do i love doing sports for this reason i've never personally been on a long through hike um last year i was telling you went to nepal and did like 14 days of trekking mm -hmm. so i'm staying in tea houses and not um, carrying my tent with me but um yeah, just that, that we're, I think, seeking something. A lot of people, including myself, seeking something. And a lot of what we're seeking is that connection in some form or fashion. For you, it's been like through hiking. And for me in the past, it's been like skiing and mountain biking and things like that. Um, but I'm yeah, always... You can yeah. it. When you ski, when you pick in a line, like you have this uh, hyper acute sensitivity mm -hmm. to stuff. Right? And uh, that sensitivity is what guides you. Without that sensitivity, you eat shit. And uh, it's the same deal when you're just out in nature all day long. You're incredibly sensitive to, to, to your entire, all of your orifices. Like you can smell things super acute. Like when I'm out without seeing people for a while and I catch first with of deodorant or sunscreen, like mm -hmm. I can smell it from so far away. And it's, oh, it's abominable. Like it's just, it's horrible. And you realize, like, man, everybody stinks. Like why don't, and uh once you get out there, you stink for a while, but once you really push enough sweat through, you're drinking fresh water, like you stop smelling, or at least you stop noticing you smell. And so you start hitching and then you get in some stranger's car and they roll down the window because <laughs> uh, yeah, you're, you're musk. But um, yeah, that's it. Like it's, it's sensitivity. It's acuteness to what's going on around you. And the beautiful thing is we have we're like this machine. The human is this this elegant machine that was that comes from a creature who's hyper evolved to be extremely sensitive to what's going on in nature. So it survives, you know. And, uh, you know, I've, I was having this this weird conversation in my head yesterday because my baby was crying. I have a young he's three weeks old. He's uh, screaming his head off. And I was thinking, like, how did humans survive back when we had fear of, of actual predators or neighboring tribes if a human baby screams like that? Like, you could have heard it from a mile away in the right sort of situation. But, you know, it's got to be critical to who we are. Like, there, there's some part of our evolution that I can't fully understand. And I think it might have happened at such a rate that certain things like the intensity of a baby's crying has always stuck in there and we had somehow or another kept us alive all this way. Pretty much everything that is like, 
actualize or any, anything that like we have or do is somewhat biologically related. Like very few things are just random, um, from what I've seen. So yeah, I agree. That's really interesting as well. How did, so the, my question before we, I want to hear more about like different, um, some of the different like through hiking trips and just adventures that you've been on. But as far as this connecting with nature, like what did that feel like to you? How did it impact your own mental health at that time when you were like figuring out? Cause a lot of the, the people that listen to this are mostly friends, family, rel- like people in their twenties, some, some other people that are just, you know, we're all trying to just figure it out. And so the whole point of like hearing different people's perspectives about what they're passionate about just opens up different ways of thinking. And, um, yeah, so I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. I'd say that it was still sort of a mystery to me. It was veiled to a certain extent by some ineffable realm until I went to Hawaii. And then I, uh, after the Appalachian trail, I, uh, I worked at Amazon returns warehouse for like a couple months working night shifts there just trying to stack some dough and keep my my head above water because after you leave a long distance hiking trip, like six months, the Appalachian Trail, I did six months Continental Divide Trail. I've done, you know, many trips of multiple months. And once you come back to the world, that's when everything gets way hard. And it's all of this confidence you had in yourself to do anything that you put in front of you because you walked 2,000 miles from point A to point B. You can do anything. All of that confidence gets swamped by by just everyday mundane bullshit. And you realize that the people that you met in the woods had so much more enthusiasm for life than the people you go to work with. And you start having this like feeling of like there's a, a or just this huge void between you and everybody else. And um, it infects you like because you live whether you hike with somebody or not, you live a very solitudinous life. And then you're thrown into, you know, thrown back into traffic. It can be really intense. So after I left the AT, I was struggling a lot, like just feeling incredibly anxious and disillusioned. And it felt like that experience had made things worse and harder for me because it had revealed this world, but it's so counterintuitive to the real world that there was this missing branch. But uh, I met this guy out in the woods called Stone Dance, a friend of my friend of mine to this day. He's my like spiritual guidance counselor. Uh, he had told me about this trip he took to Kauai, you know, and uh, he was telling me how cool it was, all the hippies out there, this and that. And, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut says, like, a, a good travel suggestion is a, is a dance lesson from God. And um, I'm, I'm not a real God believer, but I love the sentiment. And uh, so I was like, man, I think I just got a hankering to go to Kauai. So I bought a one-way ticket out there, just had my, my kit with me. Uh, but instead of a tent, just had a hammock, you know, a little mosquito net and rocked out there and was just camping on beaches and hanging out with hippies. And, uh, one night met this guy at a hostel, uh, called Sebastian and, uh, he had a guitar and a surfboard with him. And he's like, oh, I'm going out to call out tomorrow. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, you don't know what call out is like, I was like, no, what, is, what is, what are you talking about? He's like, there is a place you have to hike 11 miles to get to. And there's a valley, like it's like a paradise valley at the end of this trail. There's no roads that go there. There's no nothing. 
There's people that live out there. There's people that lived out there for 30 years just living off the rainforest. And I was like, dude, I'm coming. So we walked out there. At this time, I was going barefoot. So I hiked barefoot. He hiked with a guitar and surfboard. We were about going the same pace. Like It's hard going, lots of little hills and ups and down. So you get on the North Shore of Kauai and you just take off going west and just sort of undulates through all the valleys right on the coastal edge. You get to see like humpback whales jumping out in the distance. You see these like pilgrim hippies with their, you know, hemp backpacks and dreadlocks like making their way into the jungle. And then you get there and it's just it's so beautiful. It's ridiculous. You've got 4000 foot mountains that just drop sheer into the ocean and it's, it's total Jurassic Park insanity. And uh, I got out there. And um, I was used to like every day if the, when you through hike, you wake up and you keep going. When I got out there, it's like you're just there. What am I going to do with my day? So I started learning from the hippies about foraging plants, about, uh, you know, taro roots, foraging oranges, coffee trees, wild rainforest gardening, illegal cannabis uh, grows, you know, how to fish, how to trap, trap pigs and goats and, and then how to cook all the good stuff. At the time I was very, uh, very amateur cooker, like just inexperienced, not that into it. And I started seeing these hippies make incredible food with nothing but what they caught and fished and, and managed to find up there and, uh, started studying them and started having these long conversations with, with people that had literally lived out there for like a decade, like just never went to town. And granted, it's illegal. You're not allowed to do this. So people who get the idea, I'm just going to go do it. You're, it's illegal. And nowadays it's more cracked down on than it was when I was there. I think I was there at the tail end of what they were legally allowing people to do. But when I was there, man, I just, I just found this beautiful Hawaiian flow. You just, every day you wake up, you do ocean exercises. You get out in the water. You learn to be a water man. You hang out with your, your brothers and sisters. You cook together. You hang out together. You meditate with the older ones. You know, you, you cook, you clean, you do the, you do the service type stuff to help things work and stay, stay clean. And, and then, uh, so I did that for like, six months no way wow we were naked like i was naked half the time living in a hammock just hanging out with with people with, you'd brand them as hippies but you know they're some of them were like hippie to the core like really hippied out folks but some of them are just as deep and interesting as anybody you meet on the planet and uh you just you you, you you weather storms you weather police you know helicopter raids you you know you you kill giant pigs and fish, giant fish out of the sea, and you learn how to surf. You, you take drugs together. You make love together. It's the full deal. Wow. The full deal. And, uh, but it was all in nature. And in Hawaii, nature won't kill you. Like, there's no poisonous snakes. If you fall asleep naked someplace, you're not going to die of hypothermia. And it was this incredibly deep relationship to nature where I was foraging and eating off the land I was drinking the raw water, was taking in the sun. I was just living 100% there. And that's when it was like, boom, like th this is home. This is it. Like, this is, this is what it's all about. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, it was inevitable that I wasn't going to live there for decades. Like I had this feeling a bit of like a, the, 
island fever, you know, I wanted like a bigger horizon than the ocean. And uh, it was at that point I decided to go back to school to study agriculture because um, I was real fascinated with what we were doing it out there. I was like, oh, I'll learn the science, how they do that, how the soil science is done and this and that. And that's what guided me into Montana and all that. But uh, I would say that it was the, the Hawaii experience where you have this umbilical connection to nature that had restored my like optimism and had totally transformed me. Just like my family did not recognize me after this. Just like physically as well as. Physically, yeah. I mean, I was, I was super dark, giant beard. You know, my feet were just like they'd smooshed down and grown out. My toes were all busted up. And uh, I mean, they, they weren't off. They weren't like unsettled by me. They were just like, this guy is, he's on a different, he's, he's changed. Yeah. For the better, of course, I think at the time. And you sort of come back, you, you sort of like gravitate back to who you were to a certain extent. But, you know, out there, I mean, we would just like in the morning, we wake up and just take rocks and do like rock exercises for strengthening because it's all about the water out there. It's like, because the water will kick your ass, man. Like it really will kick your ass. Like the North Shore Hawaii is no joke. And uh, everybody who swims and surfs and like takes it seriously, like everybody trains. It's like you're eating, you're fueling, you're exercising so that when you hit that water, like you're ready. And it was super powerful hanging out with some of the lions who sit in front of the TV in the morning with a bowl of cereal, like doing push-ups and just never breathing, you know, just doing sets of push-ups, no breathing, eating cereal, no breathing. Like just because they're like, oh, if you get held under, bro, like you got to be ready, you know. And uh, but it's the whole warrior mentality combined with the hippie dynamic, you know, that that really sung to me. My dad was hiking out there one time uh, a couple years ago, and the story just came in my head. And he came across probably one of your one of your friends out there, but one of the people that lived on the North Shore, like maybe a few years ago. And uh, the guy was just like butt naked, holding a knife and looking at them. And my dad and his friends were just like hiking, like backpacking back there, and they were just like, "Hey, man, we're chilling, whatever." They, they just kind of walked by. <laughs> there are some weirdos. Yeah, it's not all. It's not all angels and hippies. There's some some strange shit that goes down out there too. But yeah, and it's got to be such a like a rich, nutrient dense area in order to like sustain life in such a small area. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the the valley that we were living in, Carlisle Valley, is about four miles long by, at its widest, maybe a mile across, maybe maybe not quite, and then that trickles down and then opens up onto a beach. And so you've got all these tributaries, good water coming down from all over. And then you have these layers of hippies. So you had like at the front of the valley, closest to the beach is like the more transient crowd, maybe a couple days, maybe a couple weeks. And then beyond are like the more like a little more full timers. And then in the back of the valley, are like the people that just never leave. Mm. And then on the beach, you got pirate camp and you, know, you got the wine living on the beach trying to, you know, with, with, you know, more more alcohol down on the beach, more uh, killing fish and watching the ocean and hitting on girls. And then, like, you know, you just got, like, these layers mm. of onion. And I was sort of floating between all the groups. I had my own camp in a, in a totally different area. And that was brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. Learn how to do so much practical stuff, like how to make cordage. Uh, What's that? How to, like, just build, make rope oh, yeah. out of uh, bark and trees. Um Learn how to work with bamboo to build build uh, build furniture. Um, 
learn how to do everything from like just building fires and, and soaking rain to uh, how to trap goats, uh, how to butcher goats, how to, you know, how to fish with a, with a big net in the, in the ocean, how to spear fish, you know, lots and lots of stuff. Just, yeah. I was just down in Mexico the last four months, as I was telling you about, and we visited this small fishing town out like three or four hours from where we were at one weekend. And these kids, it's like they're primarily sustaining this entire village off of fish that they catch every night. And so we, we got to see the, like, we were literally the only tourists in town. I was the only white person in probably, you know, 100 miles, which, um, like, was just fascinating because we were, it wasn't like a tourist area, which I don't, um, I just love those experiences where you get to see people how they really live in like a normal situation rather than just go to like a resort and just hang out at the beach. Like I just doesn't, doesn't fire me up at all. So we saw yeah. like these little kids, maybe six years old, just going out in pretty big breaks and throwing the nets in and trying to catch fish. And like in the U S if you sent your kid out to the ocean like that, you know, like without them being extremely aware and like proficient, you'd go to jail. So um, right. Yeah, I, that's pretty cool. And, and uh, do you think that so there's this idea like my buddy told me about called it's kind of it's called like indigenous futurism. But the idea is that like taking knowledge from the past from more like indigenous and just more primal, I would say, ways of living and trying to apply it to solve some of the problems that we face in society today. Like, have you ever thought about how some of these like not only just the connection to nature, but just some of these other skills and other understandings that you might learn in a situation like that could be applied to solving, let's say the mental health crisis or the, the environmental crisis or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I a hundred percent like ascribe to that, that notion, but you fall in these problems where you try to scale these ideas. And uh, oftentimes like, when we're discussing indigenous populations, we're like talking about populations that whose numbers never exceed a certain amount. And ours is constantly exceeding itself because we are a global civilization. I mean, I would I'd advocate for this, like on a small scale, whether that's in your own home or in your own neighborhood. Like if you guys all work on a little community garden together and you're, you know, making soil out of what you've got around you instead of going to the hardware store and buying fertilizer and this and that. Um, I'd say like that applies to a lot of things. Like when it comes to, for example, like in, in Hawaii, if uh, we wanted to build something, like we would all just build it together. Um, one time, uh, my buddy Brooks, who was like one of the mo more skilled um, Bushmen, I'd say back there, uh, he was like, he, he was 45 years old, but he looked like he was 28. He just jacked and had a huge dick and was an utter badass like in nature he had a rock house in the back of the valley which like a, he diverted a little creek to tr trickle through and uh he was back there he had a laptop though and solar panels so he was making music filming himself catching and butchering giant pigs and like he was growing weed he was doing everything and um so one time he came down Valley and he's like, I want to build a, a fishing ledge. Like part of the beach is all rocks, right? So this is sand and then it hits this rock bar. And he's like, in the rocks, let's just excavate the rocks and build a perfectly flat platform so it looks like nature, like we haven't like destroyed stuff. And then we'll weave a palm frond roof 
and we'll put, use guava sticks to set the roof up. And then we'll have like a sweet little fishing spot for lion rock. And uh, so we went down there and we started moving rocks. But in, in Hawaii, moving rocks is sort of like it's a big deal because back in the day, the rock moving was like a it was like a certain position in the Hawaiian society. It was like a vocation to like build these lohis, which are these terraces that they build. And it's like a sacred thing to pick up and move a rock. Brooks is a white guy, but he he embodied this. Like he, anytime you're picking up a rock, you're thinking what you're gonna do with it. You're putting it intentionally. You're never just throwing stuff. And when you put a rock in place, like for a foundation, if you're building a lohi, if you're building anything, like really think about it. Like put your heart into that rock. And you find at first it's super cumbersome because you're like you're thinking too hard. And then you get into this flow. And like Brooks and me and two other dudes and some of the hippie girls out there cooking for us and hanging out. We're moving rocks to build this just tits flat, just like perfectly flat little little deck. And uh, that's right. The girls are weaving a palm frond mat. So they're weaving this, this nice big mat. We get it set up. So we're in the shade, throwing out a line of rod. Brooks heads up valley. He brings down a dead goat and a cast iron waffle maker. So he's got like a waffle maker, just cast iron. And then we had like a little fire pit there, gathered some wood. And we threw this goat, like where the breakers are coming in on the rocks. And we pull the goat in, cut off a little bit of its leg. And then we'd throw in the, the batter to the, the waffle machine and we'd mix it up. Somebody's fishing. And then we're just handing around waffles and charred goat meat. And we're fishing and yeah, the whole deal. But it was this team spirit, the team mentality. Like we were doing that constantly. If it was building, if it was celebrating a full moon, for example, that's one of the things I miss most. Every full moon, have a potluck. Everybody makes a dish or contributes to a dish, brings it down, play the drums, we hang out, admire the full moon. And um, that sort of spirit, it, I mean, if, if you have it, it starts with community. And, and from there, it relies on people who have expert knowledge sort of disseminating that among people who are just hands or minds or willing to help. And uh, that is something we don't have. You're right. Like we're so isolated um, in our homes and in our lives that like, it's rare that we all just chip in on group projects just for, for kicks. Like, yeah, I miss it big time. And if we could get that into, uh, into our, into our, just say into our friend group, right? Like, it's hard to say get that into the country because I mean our country hates itself so like it hates each other like, I don't understand how we'd be able to like get you know get MAGA and all these other guys like at a at a heyow celebrating the full moon is probably not realistic but you know that's 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 the situation yeah. this is the this is the difference between utopian visions which I've been so lucky to live and reality like yeah, it's true. It's very true. But yeah, even on a small scale, it's just a reminder of like how powerful those small little community events and things are. Like we overlook it and try to solve these big problems. But yeah, you can... I think Washington has got it a bit better. I think you guys are a bit closer. I always noticed that in Washington was that uh, particularly Seattle and like the San Juan Islands and stuff, people, uh, they seem to care about that kind of stuff. So seems yeah i think parts of the country is more oriented in that fashion compared to other places have like you ever 
have you ever lived in a similar situation like at all like you're describing in terms of just the way the community worked like have you seen that replicated anywhere else on your travels um no i visited one of those communes in india they're doing that uh around Pondicherry. i'm blanking on the name but uh it's sort of like a formal tour thing you weren't able to like live there or anything it seemed like they were they were accomplishing something to that end but no, I, I think that's that's the problem, though, is that you have to set up a commune if you want to do that. Like You have to set up this like this state of, of its own. It's so hard to coexist, that sort of system, to coexist with others. I mean, even if you just have a very basic bartering thing in a, a neighborhood, like, this this is transcendental. Like, if you can just figure out a way where, like, I grow onions, you grow carrots, and we just, I just drop half the carrots, you drop half the, you know, like this. It would be revolutionary. Um, I know that some people are interested in bartering economies and things, but I have not personally seen it like fun at a high functioning level in society as we know it. No. That have you? Be, no, I that that would be pretty um, cool. I I uh, what was I going to say? You just got me thinking. But yeah, no the the trick that we all need to like buy. I guess what I was going to say is. Like I have a bunch of friends that have like little small businesses. I have a buddy who makes a protein bar. I have like a friend who, who um, she was on the podcast. She makes ceremonial cacao and ships it around the country. So I just try and support people like that, that are kind of like putting their love and intention into the, what they're doing. Like each little jar, she's like putting it in there and like writing a handwritten note and sending it. Like we can, um, source a lot of good things through just like small businesses and people, but it's, you don't mm -hmm. really know where to look like on the internet. Yeah. Everything's so impersonal. You don't know, Oh, is that person legit? Is this like just mm -hmm. some, and then the big corporations obviously get all the traffic. So, um, it's yeah. definitely difficult. I try and remain an optimist and I, I don't know, I just see so much potential. And also I think we're going to be forced to go to smaller scale, like community grow, um, like community farms and things like that, because it's not sustainable to be making something in Ecuador and shipping it to Seattle, you know, consistently. So, um, yeah. Tell me about the, the India and Himalaya trip, because that is insane. What you right. did just like describe yeah. what, what went down over there. It sounds amazing. Well, I, I mean, I have to mention that like up to that point, well, up to 2000, yeah, 2018, I just worked shit jobs for shit pay and like just sacrificed everything, like lived in a tent, like never went out to eat, just, you know, went stole groceries to survive, like just squirreling away every dime so that I could adventure, like with the strict intention that I would have between six and $10,000 to go just, just jump off the map for a while. But in, uh, after I did the Continental Divide Trail, I made a connection. Uh, one of my friends called Scorpion. He, uh, your friends have he, cool yeah, names, dude. Yeah, well, you gotta have a trail name. I'm Cheetah out there, by that's the way. Right. Like the, that's right. That's like right. Like the cat, but um, I was originally Jungle Cat, and then I became Cheetah. Um, he worked as a ski guide in Yellowstone National Park, and I met his boss, and he gave me a job, and I was able to make triple what I was used to making and working insanely hard. Like you work a hundred days straight, 12, 16 hour days and 
you bust ass and but it's a cool job like you're literally just you're just cross-country skiing anywhere you want like deep in yells in canyon village area national park and uh you know free reign to just like pioneer cool routes to some random place and educate people about the wilderness and cook for them and do the whole thing so i was able to cook able to do the things i love to do exercise and break trail and just do that sort of thing so i was able to make more money which was i was like i i've been dying to go to the himalaya and i'd heard about this thing called the great himalayan trail it's not a real thing it's just like a the idea is that you should be able to connect you should be able to traverse the, the himalaya on foot connecting footpaths and uh I'd done some research, seen some trip reports, and I was like, I'm gonna do it. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it solo. I'm gonna go as high as I can. You know, I'm gonna try and like push the limits of what you can do as a hiker, not a mountaineer, right? Like that was, I was like, where is the middle ground between mountaineering and hiking? And I'd been interested this in a while. It wasn't like I just jumped out there with no experience. Like I know how to ice climb. I understand a bit of a, I had very little to no glacier experience, but I understood ice and snow and all that. So uh, I saved up my money and booked my tickets and arrived in Nepal. Um, and then was, you know, faced with the, the reality of all the permit system, all this bullshit. So I had to go pretty renegade for most of it, but essentially traversed the Nepal Himalaya, sticking to like, as many of the high passes as possible and a high pass to me is something that's 18,000 feet or higher. So I was trying to, trying to get as many of those passes in. I went as high as 21,000 feet and, um, doing that all with solo with, uh, quite minimal equipment. I was wearing some fixable crampon stuff you could put on your runners, not full crampons, right? They're like just more traction. And I carry one ice axe. I started with like a 40 meter rope and a little schemo um, harness and uh, to like be able to get across a crevasse to some real sketchy descent. Um, but I didn't really use the rope much. So um, pond rope off to some Nepalis and just kept going. Um, but that it was like this, it, instead of like the spiritual journey, which, you know, the, the cool thing about the Himalayas you've seen is they've put so much work into their spirituality. Like they've built these money walls with all the rocks for the carvings and all of the temples and stupas and this and that. And it feels like a place where you'd go and you'd, you'd have a sort of spiritual thing. But what I was doing was more or less like an athletic feat. It was like, can you survive? Most people take two or three days to get over a pass. Can you do it in half a day? Like, you know, can you just charge up there full speed and basically just clip over high passes going lightweight and, and, uh, with, with, you know, a lot of those areas and it's particularly in Nepal, the maps, I had two sets of maps, one on my phone, one paper, but they're different, different marks, different brands or whatever. And, uh, there's discrepancies. They're not always the same. So you wind up having to ask people, where to go, but you don't speak the language and you wind, you know, you just get in these situations where like, it's, it's not as fun as when you're, you know, where you're going and like you have a good set of maps when you're just trying to get over a pass and somebody's telling, you know, there's a landslide over there. You can't, you won't make it. And you know, it's, you have to, in order to, to decipher whether he's lying or he's telling the truth, you have to hike 30 miles that direction. And then if you do, the only, if there is a landslide, you have to hike back out, curve around the valley, go all the way out. I mean, 
it's a huge amount of work and there's not a lot of guarantees where you're going to find shelter, where you're going to find food, all of this. So it was the culmination of so many unknowns that I, I just went full bore. I just sunk my teeth in and chased it and lived to tell another day. Like there was some, some very sketchy moments, like uh, probably some of the closest I don't know if I'd go so far as to call them NDEs, which near-death experiences, but close, like sketchy stuff. And um, I wouldn't advocate a lot of people to go do what I did, but you could do it. I proved you can do it. Go solo, take the high, you know, Great Yellowstone route. You can accomplish it, but it's it's uh, it's, it's very difficult. Jeez, man. So you- um what did people think of you when you were showing up in the middle of some of these like random places they never would expect someone to walk in? They don't, they, they're, they're so chill. Really? It's like, Oh, what's <laughs> they, up? They, they, just, they see you as a traveler. They're so used to travelers. They uh, accommodate local people all the time. So you don't need to find a tea house. You just need to find a house and they have some place you can sleep and they understand if you sleep there, you need a meal and as long as you're gentle with them and, you know, because Nepalis, I found them quite shy and um, I'm always way taller than them. Um, I mean, it's, I'm perfectly comfortable. Like it's not a Muslim country, right? So you can go ask women for whatever you need. In, in India, in certain parts, you'll be very aware of like, if you just go ask a woman, like you may not want to do that. You may want to ask a man first. And But in Nepal, um, that's in Kashmir, but in Nepal, you you can roll in and just namaste kana which is hello food question mark and uh they'll they'll usually be like yes and or some people will just be like no and i had a lot of that no no like this kind of thing and then you just keep going but somebody will somebody will give you something you can't carry enough food so you just you rely on some generosity i mean you always pay them but it's usually it's so inconsequential. Like the truth of the matter is when like on the Annapurna, uh, cause I did the, did the circuit. In fact, uh, I dropped my pack on the, cause I, I dropped down to Pokhara for a little rest and vacay and then went back up, but dropped my backpack on the Western side and then went back to the East side and ran it in two days, the full thing. The and, whole Annapurna uh, circuit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And, uh, it's like a hundred miles, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and where'd you leave the backpack? Like oh. it's, um, I think it's called like on the other side of the, the high pass where you come down and yeah. to the north is like the, the, the real like Tibetan Valley. And then mm-hmm. you just keep going. Um, there, there's a road that goes up. So I just, I just took the bus all the way clear to where the the circuit comes down to the road. Yeah. So I didn't do the the circuit coming south, but because I'm just traversing across, so I come down, get my pack. There's a little airport there. I think it's called um, Marfa. Or Marfa. Something. Yeah. 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 Rings yeah. bell. So uh, Marfa from there, I just keep heading west, uh-huh. so into the Dolpa, which is the coolest part of Nepal, I think. Um, but to be honest, and what you find on the circuit is like the commercialization of the thing. You find Nepalis who aren't really authentically Nepali. They're just like, they're charlatans. They want your money. Like there may be some cool people there. I'm not saying all of them, but I found it like just 
just very uh, discomforting because I was so used to these people. They're not used to seeing tourists. They're just they're just themselves. They're just relaxed. And um, but this is like this is the result of like a, a mountain economy is you create um you sort of create a little assembly line to like get people through and everybody tries to get as much as they can out of everybody who's coming through and then everybody makes some money and all is good. But the experience is so much less compared to when you just get off that, that big old highway and you just, once you head out into the Dolpa, for example, like my first night um, out of the Dolpa, it was like thunderstorms and stuff. And there's these crazy systems of like caves built into the mountain that you were going by. And I kept passing these cairns with skulls on top of the cairns and had this real feeling of like um, in Star Wars, those, those guys, uh, what are those guys called? They like shoot them from like up in the desert. But, the stormtroopers um, or whatever? I don't no, know. No, like back when he's like, um, I can only think of the oh. episode when they're like, they're taking the pod racers across and they're those guys like shooting from up above. Yeah. Had this very weird kind of sci-fi-ish vibe. But I was, there's no trail. So I'm just like figuring out how to get my way up to the pass that I was aiming towards. Jump the pass. And uh, at the bottom, I run into this just giant train of donkeys and goats and all this. And it was so late and the storm was coming in super heavy. And they had like a real primitive shelter. And they just called me in. They were just, come on, come on. And you got men in there getting drunk. You got women in there making like this stinging nettle soup with yak fat and the whole deal. And they're just passing around the whiskey and passing around the soup. And they're just laughing their asses off. You can't say, you can't convey a single word to each other. I was like, dude, this is cool, you know? Like, And then they're like, no, we don't need to pitch the tent. Just sleep with us. And I slept in this tiny shelter with like, like 10 Nepalis, just like we're literally like just, you know, cocooned there together. And this is cool, you know, and then the morning just blasted off. But uh, that's what it's about. Like it's it's these these amazing deep human experiences you get once you sort of abandon the, the commercial zones. But it's and when I returned to Kathmandu afterwards, I was staying at hostels and talking to people and I tell them like they'd be like, well, where should I go? You would you saw all of it. Like, where should I go? And I'm like, I don't know if I should send you there. Like, I for a couple of reasons. A, I don't think I would just send you there if I don't think you're ready, like to handle that level of exposure and adventure. B, I don't want to ruin it. Like I the the travesty with traveling is the best places the ones people go. But everybody wants to go to places like that. Yeah. It's a it double edged sword. Right? Yeah fascinating mm. the nepali people i found to be super nice i had a guide for my whole time i was there i was introduced to him through i was working on a documentary film and the guy we were making the film about had some friends that were guides in nepal and i was just observing the kind of the, the dynamics of the relationship between when you have a guide and the local tea houses and things like that and like oh, how they have this mutual understanding that like mm-hmm. like especially the guides they pay all the people that they interact with every single tea every single thing they buy they're they're basically sharing they're they're helping bring the tourist industry and so this past year like shutting down i actually stay in touch with my um my guide via facebook we'll shoot some messages back and forth and he's been telling me i want to go back and i was talking i was talking to him about maybe trying to go into the mustang region 
but also yeah. it sounds like the the dopa what's it called dopa 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 uh, d-o-l-p-a yeah dopa. So it's just west, just west of of annapurna uh-huh. really cool the other zone that i thought and i think you're totally right so i took so the guy who put together some of my permits i didn't get all of the you have to get a ridiculous amount to do all of them but i i said i'd start with permits and then just abandon permits so um uh, but the the operator he insisted that I took a guide to the first section, Kanjajunga, which is on the east, and um, I was like, fine, you know, that's it's cool, and it was it was really you're right, you learn a lot more without him. I wouldn't even have known how to like say hello, can I have some food, and uh, he taught me everything from just like sort of gentle ways you can interact with strangers to just the numbers to um different things like that and uh we we had a pretty positive relationship the difficulty of course was like i'm like we're going there tomorrow and he's like that's a three-day trek i was like it's a one-day trek like we're doing it today (laughs) so uh you know we had this sort of thing where he's just chasing after me the whole time he's like i've never had a client like you (laughs) i was like yeah well you're gonna get paid don't worry i'm giving you money but um i'd say kanjajenga is is also seriously worth checking out it's so so cool back there how did you start to build up the confidence and the skill set to do this stuff like i feel like myself included i just come to these mental blocks it's like oh that's like just too big of a like the great himalaya is something that is like is it known that people have even done it before you like yeah yeah so uh, there yeah there's um a couple trip reports like it's it'd been done solo the year before i went i I found a guy who did it solo and, um, and this is like, he's one of these like guys that you'd meet in Moab. He's going to base jump and stuff. Like he's pretty, he's pretty nutty. Like didn't have a lot of experience doing this sort of thing. Was just interested in seeing if he could do it. He did do it. Um, effectively. Like we both, we took some different variations on the route at different times, but when I hit him up, I just detected like, yeah, the permit system was going to be impossible for me. So you can either take that as a shutdown or you can just plow ahead and hope for the best. And that for a lot of people, like a legal problem would be mm-hmm. the no go, right? Like if I'm not allowed to be there, if I'm like actually breaking the law by being there, I probably shouldn't go. But I was, I just sort of d- just turn a deaf ear and go for it and wound up in some weird situations. But the Nepali is a pretty, pretty reasonable you can plead ignorance. You can grease some palms, you know, throw a couple, couple, you know, little root, some rupees around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, like for example, on the maps are these police checkpoints, but they're not always where they say they are. And sometimes they're manned, sometimes they're not. But if I could decipher, if like I, if I had a feeling, an intuitive feeling, there's gonna be somebody, I would pay somebody and I would do this in the, the grossest sort of way. I would just, cause often you'd have like this, no, no language barrier. I would just be like money, police, let's go, you know, like, and I'd give him like some that he couldn't even like, look, if you're going to give somebody $10 in a rural Nepal, like our equivalent to $10, which I believe is just 10,000 rupees or something like that. Um, then like, they're going to just, like usually they'll they'll just help you out. I mean, you don't do it to just anybody. A lot of this is like just being perceptive. Who might help you? Who might not? Like, um, and when I actually dealt with military police in the Dopa, they uh, 
were very stern with me at first. And then uh, I just, we just hung out and started drinking and I started talking about Donald Trump and we were all just laughing and that was that. Like they just, they just <laughs> let me go. Like they just took down all my information. They, they saw that I had no bad intent that like I was relaxed and chill and like, you know, I think it'd be different if you brought a big camera and stuff because, and I want, like, part of me really wanted to document that trip. Um, I'd ne- I've never taken a camera, like a proper camera or like sought the ability to document a big trip. But I was like, you know, part of me at that time was like, if you want to keep doing this, you have to, like, nobody's going to give a shit about your words. If you've got, if you've got good footage, that's, that's all you need. Like, and I had tons of good footage. If I if I had had a camera, I would have had a bounty of it. But the problem, this 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 dilemma I came to is, with the camera, is the experience different? And my answer was resoundingly, it's going to be different. Like, I'm going to be in situations where I'm like, I need to document this. And then that documenting then has a ripple effect over what's going to happen. And... Um, really the key to my survival and a couple of those moments when I was up there and was really having my wits about me was being able to like make very spontaneous in the flow decisions that came from some secret intuition. Like it, it's not a trainable thing. I think it just comes from a courage and uh, sort of a, a big smile. Really. That helps a lot. Like just smiling at people in Nepal, they're, they're, they're very cool. Like, if they can see that you're comfortable, then maybe they should be comfortable. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a lot of it. And then just, if they want to do anything, if they want to serve you some weird dried fish dish, some putrid dried fish, because it's, there's this white specialty, you better stare and eat it all. Like, then if it's, it's rancid, like you just got to do it. <laughs> you just, just got to go, go with the way that they do stuff. Yeah. Um, and then when it, when it was in the mountain situations, you know, like, when I was, when I was, uh, dealing with, with technical mountaineering stuff in retrospect, those are the most lethal, but those are also the places where if you're comfortable on rock and ice, then you just, you just execute. And, um, yeah, you, the other thing though is in Nepal, you basically have more naysayers than I've ever seen in my life. When you tell people you're going to go up and go over that passage, you cannot do that. Sorry, you cannot do that. It's not possible to do that. And uh, you have to take a guide and uh, Sherpa and this and that. It's, it's fine. I'll be all right. Thanks for the tea, you know, and blast off. But when you deal with that, like, interaction just over and over and over again, it starts wearing on you. And then you, I started create, having this sort of, like, ugh stigma with the people is like you know i'm just tired of all this naysaying like it's just gonna happen you have to be able to have that and maybe that's the american spirit i don't know what it is but um you just got to be willing to when people say no you gotta say yes like it's just you have to be willing to try that's the way i feel like is uh some of those passes i didn't know i was gonna be able to do them but i thought i'd try and then did them Mm -hmm. a lot of people just they just okay i won't do that it's too dangerous but Yeah, um, they say and I really don't want to toot my own horn too much on this. Like it was, I'd say like I I did it in a very sketchy manner that is is not really like an admirable high style. Like it's done <laughs> renegade bare bones, like without probably ample experience. So it's 
it's just it was my expression of a route and it got done but um yeah so in terms of documenting you we were talking the other day about how you uh like writing is your medium of communicating some of these stories and clearly you're a good storyteller verbally do you ever write down some of the experiences that you have i know you journal yeah, I, I do journal. I uh, I kept blog for the whole Continental Divide Trail. Um, I did keep quite a bit on my Himalayan route. Um, I, so I just had like a WordPress blog website, which uh, you can see a lot of the, the Himalayan stuff. Um, a lot of it, though, is like tamped down in this these sort of really lengthy rambling Word documents that I have on my computer. And um, I've been wanting to sort of like compile them um and hopefully publish like some stories you know um but uh, i've always sort of i've like i read basically only classic fiction i mean i read occasionally some nonfiction, like whether it's travel nonfiction or it's like like real technical stuff about like building a nuclear bomb or something that i find very interesting but uh my grounding in in fiction is has me also like how far can, how much can I use the experience as a reservoir to then like create a novel or create something that's bigger than just the literal experience? Because what you find in just talking about covering a single pass is you have um, a sort of rigid constraint with um, a sort of mute beginning and a mute end with like a pass, right? With like a high point, but you don't have any resolution. You don't have like a lot of like what goes into creating a tantalizing story like you have just this this sort of interval of experience and a lot of my stories are like that like they're not i find they're 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 a bit loose like they're just they're just not tightened up enough or they're not big enough so that they're they fall a bit short i mean they capture a moment but i've had a hard time trying to figure out i know a lot of people manage to like hike the pacific crest trail and just write a book but i i hate those books like i just find them abhorrent like there's no substance and um what i want to do is start with like really like my craft like needs development so i know it like i i read i read my work and i like some stuff and i just like hate other stuff but I know that the stuff I hate is just because I didn't give it enough intensity and enough energy. And like, I didn't just like work as hard as I had in that moment when I actually lived it. And, um, that process is something like I, yeah, I want to do more fully. And then from there kind of develop uh, a bigger arc than just, you know, the one thing or the other, but you know, these are all sort of my, um, grandiose, goals and visions for my own creative self but it's you know it's one thing to talk about it and it's another thing to do it and um you know i'm always at the crossroads of some sort of creative dilemma and um yeah hopefully in the future you'll see some 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 work by me but you know i can't we'll wait see. and if you yeah. i'll tell you man if you bring that same attitude that you brought to the himalaya trail or even the the hey duke or whatever else I mean, that's that tenacity to just like get it done is uh, that's an X factor, you know, like I feel like that's uh, that makes up for a little bit of lack of skill or experience or whatever. And you can pick that stuff up in time. So I'm I'm uh, I'm buying in. I'm optimistic about it. And 
and stoked that you're like, how long have you identified as creative? Has that always been something or is that recent? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's been, a, it's been a long time since, I mean, I, I remember like in grade school, I used to like write little, little books and stuff and my mom would get them laminated and stuff and I'd have them around the house. And mm-hmm. I've always just like been real. I had a, a good English teacher and I was in seventh grade, Miss Battistini, shout out. Um, and uh, she's like one of these prim old ladies who is a stickler for all things grammar, but like her energy and passion for the written word was so contagious to me. And a lot of kids in the class were scared of her and hated her. Like, but I was like, she's, this is so cool. And um, after that, you know, I had a number of like, that's when you have a good teacher, it's really makes all the difference. I had another in high school. It's like, you know, I wrote it. I wrote like, this is supposed to be a, a literary essay on something or another and he's like you know if you just instead wrote this in a poem form it would have been great as an essay it was terrible but if it was a poem it would have been beautiful and i was like yeah but right you gave me a seat so what am i supposed to do it wasn't a poem um and uh i've i've every trip i've gone on always have a book always have a journal in in the himalaya actually one brief anecdote something very sad which befell me in the himalaya was because I could never speak English with people, I wrote habitually every single day when I made camp. I'd write for like an hour and a half, two hours, like just writing till my hand was too numb to write anymore. I would fall asleep. So I had, and I, and this, this, this little notebook, I rolled up every day and like put a rubber band around it. And like, it looked like it covered the Himalaya. Like it looked, it looked it. And, um, I made it back to Kathmandu. I didn't look, I didn't, I didn't bring a water filter. I drank raw water the entire way across. I believe in raw water. I'm all about it. I've gotten Giardia before. I don't care. Raw water is where it's at. Don't waste your time filtering water. Just drink the good shit. Really? Okay. Perfectly good. Yeah. Um, and on the Hey Duke, I brought a water filter just because I knew I was going to have to hit some cattle wells, you know, like some areas where it's definitely not drinkable. Um, a little Sawyer mini filter on the on the Hey Duke. That's my favorite. Is the Sawyer mini mini filter. But, the one um, you have to squeeze with your hands. Uh yeah 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 that one's the best. Um, Just because it's lightweight. Bought, yeah yeah because I never I never filter it unless it's, unless it's horrendous unless you unless it actually stinks like. <laughs> I just I just pass mediocre sources because I go fast and I get to good sources. Uh-huh. That's it. And um, so I made it back to Kathmandu and staying at a hostel. And I just wasn't thinking. I just drank the tap water. Just drank the tap water at the hostel. I got sick as fuck. Like sick as a dog. And um, I spent the next three days wandering around Tamil and Kathmandu just like fevered out like vomiting and diarying at the same time, like just, and, uh, on the fourth morning, I started feeling better. I was going to go reach for my notebook, start jotting down some notes, just look over some stuff. And I couldn't find my notebook. And I was like, what, where's my notebook? You know? And I looked all around my bed, my bunk, couldn't find anything. And then I went down to the front desk. I was like, "Have yeah, anybody turn it? Did I leave it on the common area? Like, has anybody seen a notebook?" Start asking. Nobody's like, "Everybody's not seen a notebook." And uh, then it dawned on me, like, I, I left it someplace yesterday. And I was wandering around. So then, but people could tell like, I was worrying. So like, well, where did you go yesterday? I was like, I don't even remember. Like, I was I had such a high fever. And they're like, "Well, just 
go start wandering, go think about where you would have gone, go visit all those places, go ask around. So I started doing, I went to cafe after cafe after cafe, just asking, has anybody seen a notebook? Has anybody? Everybody said, no, I gave everybody my little phone, my phone number with my SIM card from Nepal in it and lost it. Gone. Like, like 50 days of intense introspection and narrative about what's happened to me over the course of that. And I mean, it was a, it was basically a book. And I, there's a girl at the hostel there. She's like, you know what, what are you waiting for? Just start writing, start writing it all again. I was like, I can't like, it's too much. It's too big. It's like, how am I going to put myself where I was when I wrote that, when I was, you know, just come over some snowy pass at 18,000 feet and, you know, almost lost my leg. And then, you know, this kind of like crazy stuff where I was in this state of mind, like stream of consciousness is something that you can't just rebottle. Like yeah. it just, it already was out. Like it's gone. And it's a grim reality, you know, but I've always been really bad at keeping track of my, um, my notebooks in particular. My mom's always saying, oh, just send them to me. I'll hold them, put them in a shoebox." Some of them, she's got some of them, but, uh, yeah, that's, that was, that was a big blow. Dude, that's painful. That's, I know how it is. Right. It's like losing a memory card or something. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yep. I just lost actually two times in my life. I've gone on trips three months or more. And both of those times I've completely lost everything that I shot on both of those mm -hmm. trips. So <laughs> one time in Europe and one time just recently here in uh, down going down to Mexico, my hard drive just failed with a video project that had, I don't know, probably not as much like just blood, sweat and tears as what you had. And fortunately I can get back in the headspace that I was in to cre recreate it. But at least a hundred hours of video wow. work on wow. one video. And so now I'm just like chipping away at it. I started last week. I'm just, I had a man, I had no choice. Like I got a call from the, the hard drive recovery people and they were like, Hey, yeah. uh, this drive is done. There's no data on it. Can't recover. And so I was just like, I could freak out about it or I could just harness that energy and just like start right away. So I just did that, kept my mind off it. But it's, I, I just know how brutal it is to like lose something that you like put your, you can't get it back. Like you said, it's yeah. a gr grim oh. reality. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think like the experiences that you've had allow you to overcome challenges uh, more easily than had you stayed on that original trajectory that was a little bit more carved out? For sure. I mean, I wouldn't say that there was any chance that I wouldn't have taken the steps I took. You know, I think there's something just so inevitable about where we go that uh i don't know a free will is sort of out of the window it's it's all it, it was all it was in the cards the whole time somebody could have told me that was going to happen it probably would have still happened um but yeah yeah i mean those experiences in the mountains in particular it makes you strong and uh dealing with so much solitude makes you even stronger it makes you like very resilient individual i think and uh like when um, my wife, uh, she she had 30 hours of labor the other day. And, uh, you know, I've run ultra marathon. I've run four 100s. And um, I've, you know, I've been, I've had sleep deprivation, that kind of stuff. And when things are getting super, super hard, like I just kept falling back on that, that same thing where it's like, dude, keep your shit together lock it down. Now's not the time to freak out, mm -hmm. you know, 
somebody's got to hold down the space. You got to keep your heads about you. And, um, you know, that was one example where like when it was happening and there was a lot of emotion in the air and like, I was worried for, you know, her life, the baby's life. And unfortunately everything is fine. You know, everything is good. But there's a moment where like death sort of crept into the room and I was, I saw it. I saw it, death. And I was like, I'm not backing down. Like she saw it and she was terrified, terrified. And uh, we were just strong together in those moments. But part of me wanted to just start bawling and freaking out. But I, I really went back to like those, those sort of pain caves that I've known well. And was like, this is, this is like, you make this your home. Just be cool. Be cool. And um, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, everything is good. Baby's beautiful and healthy and she survived. But, you know, th- that was one moment I was like, I had no idea I was training for that. That's fascinating. I always say, man, like, I don't always know what I'm training for either. I say that as well. Like, just putting in the work so that someday in the future I'll be ready to do what needs to be done, mm-hmm. um, either physically or mentally. That's that's a crazy story, though. So, you know, everything worked out 30 hours. What an insanely long yeah. amount of time. Like, to have... Yeah, the baby, right. To, to stay composed. It didn't, and, yeah. uh, we wound up having to do cesarean section at the last minute, but, uh, in, in that moment, like baby's heart rate, cause he was on his way out. He's full term baby. Everything's good, but it just, it's not happening. And when, uh, we tried and tried and tried and his, his heart rate just fell off and doctor was nowhere to be seen. And I'm like, that I know it's ringing out there. Like they got to come in here. The heart rate's not. And then they bust in like, it's going to happen. And she's like, I'm terrified. And it all happened incredibly fast. And baby was fine. Like, I think maybe just the monitor got shook a little bit in a way where they couldn't detect his heart rate. Cause he came out roaring, you know, roaring like a lion. He's roaring right now. Actually. I can hear but, him. Um, I can hear him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it's all good, but you know, it, it's one of those things where like you're faced with like faced with mortality uh, you face with life and mortality because they come together. They're like, they're just, they're two sides of the same coin. And you face with like the very real feelings of not having slept for two nights and being emotionally strung out or uh, in a situation where you just, you the fatigue is at a high level. And then how you comport yourself in those moments is, uh, indicative of so much and that's why i love ultras and it's a different sort of realm but it's been where i've been i've i've sort of taken that adventure spirit and plugged it into the running because it's a more domesticated form of the same thing like can you how hard can you push yourself it's a more distilled form too it's domesticated but it's distilled because like it's a guarantee if you run 100 miles like you're gonna you're gonna see the devil like you're gonna see the devil you're going you're gonna to see yourself at your very worst and at your very best. You can experience the entire arc of all human emotions over the course of 24 hours or however long it takes you to finish. And, um, but it's beautiful. Like That's what life is. It's all about that. It's about getting at those, those extremes. I mean, um, I suffered a lot last year, not, not being able to have an expedition and not being able to race a big race or do anything. I mean, I did some projects of my own. Um, but uh, I was working a lot last year, and but I, I have this like need to to just to to experience a lot of suffering, and um, I don't know where that came from because that wasn't something I was raised on. 
Um, but I think there's so much to learn from real deep physical suffering um, that I'd advise anybody to try stuff that they feel like they can't do. I don't care if that's like, it could be the smallest thing that if it's outside your comfort zone. You're more than likely to benefit from it. Doing hard things definitely is crucial. And when you don't, then your brain starts to like atrophy, like those, just the, the, the muscles of critical thinking and moving your body in new ways. I learned how to surf, um, down in Mexico recently and, um, bouldering, like I was telling you about like these things, I intentionally bring them into my life. Similar to you with running. I've, Man, when you say pain cave and suffer chamber is another word that comes to mind um, when yeah. I talk about suffering. But it's um, when you're in that moment, it's just so mental. And I've been also getting into the ice ice bathing a bit, just getting in okay. the cold water. Um, haven't been as consistent as I'd like to. Haven't done it since I got home in, here in Seattle, since it's ice in the air pretty much. Um, but yeah, I think there's something about like we were talking about earlier, just the domesticated lives that we live and like intentionally exposing yourself to those like moments on the other end of the spectrum can make the experience. Like when we're just sitting here having this conversation, like this is so awesome because my legs are sore. I'm feeling good. I got my heart rate moving, like did all the things that need to be done in order to actually enjoy this moment here. So, yeah, you know, I think, um, the ice stuff is real fascinating. I got into it for a bit. I, I had not heard about Wim Hof and then like, it's funny that you mentioned that I brought him up to you. Yeah. And like, you were that. And you're not the only person that I know that I've introduced to him off that comes to me to talk about it. And uh, it's fantastic because I remember the person that talked to me about it first. He's like a classmate of mine in university. And uh, he was like, he's like, uh, do you know the Iceman? And I was like, who's the Iceman? And he's like, are you serious, dude? Can you go home and watch this documentary immediately? I was like, all right. I'm doing it. And I watched it. And like the next day I was driving down to the Yellowstone river in winter to go swim. You know, oh I was like, I'm going right away. Like, let's do it. And, uh, Classic. and, uh, and that's not the boiling river. Either. I'm not talking about the thermal areas. I'm talking about the freezing cold green water with like actual sheets of ice coming down through it. And, um, yeah, I did that. And, and then I started using, I started using the, the breathing. Like when I was on an ice climb, like in certain situations on mountains when I was sort of right against the edge of what I thought I could do and knowing that I was on the verge of having a bit of a panic uh, to sort of get as much oxygen in as possible and tame the mind, tame the body. Because you have these physiological reactions. Uh, often I do, and I'm sure all climbers do. When they're climbing and like things are not going right, you don't feel right. Like you start trembling you start sweating, your mind starts racing. And like in those moments, like it's incredibly critical that you like, you, you see yourself through. But uh, yeah, the, the Hoff stuff, like it got me immediately. I realized how efficacious such simple things were. And before that period, I was terrified of cold water. Like I hated cold water. I still do hate cold water, but I know now that it's insanely good for you. Mm -hmm. And uh yeah, it's so hard to keep the discipline. Like, I really don't. I, I still chicken out on taking cold showers. And I still like, oh, do I? I tell myself, take a couple cold showers this week, you know, stay hard. But like, I don't, you know, I, every once in a while, I'll just brave it. It's easier for me to jump in than it is, like, just jump into some frigid thing than it is to, like, intentionally turn on the cold tap. Oh, like, man. 
you know. I tried to get in the lake up here in Seattle two days ago, and I got I did the breathing. I didn't do as many sets of it. I was kind of rushing, but I did like two sets of forty deep breaths with a couple nice. breath holds, and then I got in the lake and I'm telling you like maybe 18 seconds later I'm getting out of there I'm like I totally lost my connection to the breath and just like let my my fight or flight go into fight I, I, whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever that whole side of the brain is that that happened to me and yeah I think being able to tame that is like a skill that is um, like a lot of people are starting to like put a finger on like find some of these different things that can like tap into those like deeper kind of abilities that we have as human beings. Well, yeah, people want cheat codes, you know, they want like the, the hacks, like the quick ways to yeah. it. I mean, there's like, there's more basic, like running is, is uh, like I, I run not because I want to perfect the art of running, but because I want to like, I know that if I run long enough, it's going to hurt like a motherfucker. And uh, that's what I want all along. And then running teaches you so much about breath. And so much about sort of the mentality you have to have when pain really starts. Like, uh, it's a great, like, spiritual thing, like running. It's a very ancient thing to do. And um, I found that that's, like, that's my way of doing it. Because I know that if I get there, I'm going to be a much better person to everybody in my life afterwards. Everybody is going to know that, oh, yeah, he's, look at him, he's, He's got his workout in, and he's pleasant to be around. If I don't do that for too many days, I'm a bear, man. I'm no fun. <laughs> so you, what's your daily practice like in terms of just getting time for yourself? Is it mostly running? Do you do a meditation or anything else to make sure that you're, you know, being the best partner and father and human being that you can be? Right. Um, so before the baby, <laughs> uh, I had like, a regimen. I started this thing back uh, 2018 called the Benjamin Franklin Club. So Benjamin Franklin, his autobiography, he writes about this like uh, he created this little chart for himself where he'd get a sticker for um, uh, expressing a certain virtue on each day. So like on Monday, he's got to practice economy. And then on Tuesday, he's got to practice charity. And then on Thursday, he's got to he's got to do courage. And um each each day that came around, he had to work on one trait and he'd keep track. Okay, I did that. I did that. Like today, I made sure I was more generous than I would have been otherwise. Um, and so I started doing that on my own like scale. So I I did this. I had like this in my my journal, like this big chart. But instead of practicing virtue, as I was just practicing like today. Did you meditate? Did you do push-ups? Did you run? Did you practice your foreign language work? Did you write? Uh, did you uh, not drink? Did you like, you know, I create, I, I sort of like identify the things that I want to do, highlight and work on, and then keep an actual chart each day and accumulate points over a day. So instead of one thing per day, you, I try to aim for three points in a day. So did I uh, meditate? So for me, my metrics, I knew like where I was for me at the time. Like what I usually do is, did you meditate for 20 minutes? Did you, uh, did you do a hundred pushups? I like a hundred pushups. Some people maybe need 20. Some people need a thousand. Just for me, hundred pushups is great. And uh, my running, I never keep any metric because my running can be as, as much as like an insane amount or as just as little as like, you know, four or five miles. So if I ran, I get a point. 
if I worked at all on my foreign language skills. So I, I sort of like just laid it out. And then I just encouraged myself, get points, just get points, dude. Go spend 10 minutes, get a point, you know? And um, I found this had a real positive feedback on those behaviors. But uh, the seeing the list and seeing the stuff and seeing the points, like holding yourself accountable is super important. With my running, I keep track of that on a whole different thing. And every day I got to input my, my workouts and keep track of my time and effort levels and climbing and this and that. Um, but that's more part of training regimens, building for races and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, yeah, the actual tallying up of things is, is super good. But I find, like, for me, the best is morning time. Like, can you get up early and get after it? Like, uh, and then you can have a way cruisier day. Um, but, yeah, so ideally for me, just quick, I'll just do a quick dirty. Ideally, wake up, hit the pillow, 20 minutes, meditate. Then Wim Hof breathing. If not Wim Hof, just some variation on pranayama, getting oxygen into the system. Push-ups, ab exercises, yoga, stretching. And then I won't eat. I, I don't eat until like the afternoon, right? So like I just keep all that off the back burner. And then I'll go for a run in the afternoon. You know, after after all the benefits of the morning is dribbled, drizzled out, then I hit the run so I can be, you know, a better person. To eat. That is before the baby. With the baby, man, it's – it's all jeveled up now. In fact, all most everything is sort of uh, taking a back seat for the, for the moment. But um, it's it's sort of a it's a hard first month. So hopefully things we get into a better routine and be able to cement myself back into the practice. But yeah, twenty minutes meditation seems to be like a good number for me. Sometimes thirty minutes, but it's yeah, just depends. That's a that's a yeah, a lot of different. Um approaches to just like mindfulness in there i like it i um myself could definitely aspire to just have like one of those things in my morning uh, but yeah i definitely think the morning is is the the time to get do things done if you do one thing in the morning what do you think is is the most uh i don't know beneficial for you i think for me walking is probably what it is like if i get too big of a workout sometimes i drain myself a little bit and i can't have as yeah. much energy throughout all the things i have to do in the day um true I, yeah i think i mo for me it's been walking or just like getting moving a bit um, but yeah before these podcasts i have a little ritual mostly involves a little caffeine, whether it's tea or coffee and just kind of like setting the space. And I like to have plenty of time, not feel rushed. Yeah. Uh, you got to kind of like set yourself up, especially like if you're trying to do something where you have to be very in the present moment, you don't want distractions, but, um, yeah, man, this has been, a, this has been a blast. Oh, absolutely. I've enjoyed talking. Thanks. Thanks for letting me rip. Yeah, man. This, you're a storyteller at heart for sure. Hmm. It's in your blood. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing all the different stories. I'm, I think my face hurts because I've been smiling over here this whole this whole time, just listening. Dude, my throat hurts. I don't I don't get a chance to sort of spout off like that. A lot of people in my life are used to me going going <laughs> off on my Kalalau rants and stuff. So they're, I'm beating the old drum whenever I hit it around them. So it's cool to to get to talk about it in, um, in a different format like this. So thank you. Yeah, man. Before I let you go, I've got my notes up here. I wanted to ask you if you've ever been intimidated by an experience out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Rivers, rivers intimidate me. Um, you know, I've had I've made some really sketchy fords, like 
really deep, fast water scares me. Ocean, like I've learned my lesson real hard in the ocean before um, getting into surf that was way too big. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been intimidated by mother nature so many times, man, big mountains, sketchy ice fields, uh, that stuff intimidates me. Um, but it doesn't make me stop. Like I still go back like in, in tango with big surf or big mountain, but it's, I've been humbled enough times to know that like you better pay homage before you go up there or go out there. It's, it's yeah. Can end it pretty quick actually. Yeah. Yeah. I see it on the mountain all the time, just in the ski resort. Like you see people going down all the time. And uh, yeah, uh, every time I get back to the car, mountain bike or ski or whatever, it's a successful day. You know, that's what it's all about, getting back healthy and living to fight another one. Yep. So um, the WordPress site, I'm going to link that one out here on the description to the pod. So if anyone wants to read a little bit more about what you've been doing. But uh, what's where, where else can I... Uh, keep keep in touch with you um you know jesus i guess they could follow american cheetah if they if they got a little <laughs> but uh you know i i i'm a bit of a reckless hopefully in the future you see my name in some um in some i'm gonna chat you the uh link to the website but um, uh i'm a bit uh yeah a bit of a recluse and um hopefully in the future you find some books but uh right now um, yeah, it's all boiling away in there. It's just some seething cauldron. It's all cooking up into something. Yep. And, uh, I, yeah, we'll see. I, I'd like to, to still rip out some adventures, um, coming up, but, uh, I'm kind of keep, I can't really divulge any plans because I have no idea where I'll be able to travel and how that will go down. So mm-hmm. you, are you hoping to do something this year? Uh, yeah, but I think I think that was that was a bit tentative before I saw how I you know I think a lot of us thought for whatever reason even though it's totally ambiguous that because it's January first of the new year things are going to change but um, most of what I want to do is uh, is like for me like I I mean I guess just running up and down Mont Blanc a bunch of times sounds cool but um, I was hoping to get back to the Himalaya but I don't think it's going to happen we'll see hey look. Fingers crossed. Let me know, man. I want to I wanna hear about that trip. I want to make another trip to the Himalaya as well, as soon as possible. Yeah, I decided once I went there, I was going to keep a lifetime dialogue with it. Just, you know, keep going. And so many things in your path. Like, I feel like you're just like a more extreme version of me. Like, you just take it five steps further than, <laughs> than I do. But I have the same adventurous spirit and like kind of like perspective on just like making the most of this short little life that we have. Hey man, you're making stuff. So keep it up. Keep making stuff. Thanks man. Yeah. I love having these conversations. This is a blast. Um, I'll circle back and uh, talk to you very soon when I publish this episode and um, yeah, just generally well, yeah. I want to say thank you again, man, for coming on and taking some time. I know you got a lot going on in the other room over there. So enjoy your dinner. Totally bro. We're going to go eat. Orquietes. Aloha. Orquietes. All right, man. Ben, thank you again. Talk to you very soon. All right, Kyle. Thanks again. See ya. Cheers. Take care.